Hello, and welcome to another Dishcast, this time with the great and powerful <laughs> Jonathan Roush. That's how Joe Rogan introduces everybody is great and powerful. But actually, John is great and powerful. I've, we've known each other for most of our adult lives, I would say. 30, 30 years now since you recruited me to write for New Republic. Um, and we've gone through our lives together both as writers in the sort of broad, old-school liberal or conservative sense, although you're not a conservative in, in, in ways that I am, um, and also as uh, homos. Uh, and when I met you, you know, you were just beginning to come to terms with that, and, and you've flourished well, I, and bloomed well, I'd been out, since. but but your oh, you role, and I had been out, but but your role was to say, come right openly gay for New Republic, and you... Right. You made that possible. You encouraged it. I had a council of war with my friends and said, you know, once I do this, I can never undo it. And it was 1991. Uh, and I did it. And I've never looked back. And I still owe you for that, dragging me out into the public prints. Well, I, I, I invited you out. I, 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 I didn't force you to do anything you <laughs> An didn't invitation do. from Andrew Sullivan yeah, is, never a good can idea. be quite compelling. Well, do, on the other hand, extremely dangerous. Be careful. I remember, I remember that happening really when I wrote the first piece virtually not uh, uh, for the uh, what's it called the case for gay marriage. Here comes the groom, as Kinsley called it, and that too was like, uh, well, that's it. I'm done now. Even though I was out to my friends, to be that publicly out um, was a step. Um, I remember the first time I used the word "we." It's interesting how pronouns can can be significant. Was in the nine the gay life gay death piece, which just came my, a year um, later. My father warned me, 1995. I told him I was going to write a piece for New Republic on gay marriage. You put it on the cover. It was your last cover, I think, before you left. And he begged me not to do that, not because he was homophobic or even anti same sex marriage, but he said it would destroy my career because after that, no one would take me seriously because the idea was so ludicrous. And at the time, that seemed very possible. And my my mother the same. Um, I remember what you said about virtually normal. Which said, well, that's very nice. I, I, I'd, I'd love you to write a real book soon. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean a real book? So, you know, one that, you know, uses your scholarship and isn't, a, you know, one of those topics. <laughs> and it was, that's, that's how my fa some of my family responded to it too. Well, we were uh, pleading for special rights, as you recall. Yeah, well, she just wanted, like your. Uh, dad, she thought it would basically be my career would be over. And we were the first generation to really be out from the get-go. We didn't have yeah, a... And, and be out in ways that displeased the activists who at that point were running the movement. And now we're running it again, but yes. I suppose that's another podcast. It is, although we might get to it in this, because what we're talking about today is John's new book, which I have just finished reading, uh, which is called The Constitution of Knowledge. The subtitle, A Defense of Truth. Um, and I have to say that I found it uh, very just helpful to me, even though I know a lot of this already. Uh, it's not like we haven't talked or thought about these issues over a long period of time and share roughly the same perspective. But what John has done in this book is really systematically explain liberalism think at its at, in one of its uh, its anglo-american form over the last two or three hundred years and even 
its origins in uh, the religious wars in Europe and how it evolved and its strengths. Uh, this is not a this is not an affirmative description of what truth is. It's more a description of the way in which we can provisionally believe something is true until we find out it isn't, or we find out that there's a nuance to it. So, start off with this: the essence of liberalism, this, this, the key principles of it. Um, and one of the key principles is that it's a collective thing and requires certain disciplines and certain principles. L lay them out for us. Well, this is, I think of this book, if, if it's a bit off-putting, I suppose, but I think of it as, as inventing Madisonian epistemology. What it's trying to do is take the same liberal principles which were developed into the U.S. Constitution and show that we also use them to create and define objective reality. And so the fundamental notion here is, you know, to be ridiculously uh, over schematic, that humans naturally form into tribes and they tend to follow authorities and they tend to split into sects and then go to war and they do this to settle political disputes and they also do it to settle epistemic disputes. Whose God is right? Whose God is wrong? Well, that happens one time too many. We get the religious wars that rage across Europe. Some scholars think maybe 30% of the population of today's Germany died. And John Locke and some other people emerge from that cauldron and say, there's got to be a better way. And they create this notion of, wait a minute, suppose you can outsource decisions about key social conflicts, you know, who gets to rule, um, who gets the resources, and who gets to decide what's true. Suppose you can outsource that to a, a network. They didn't call it that, but a network of people and institutions using impersonal rules. And that could be rules like voting. It could be delegated to Congress and courts. Uh, it could be rules like empiricism. Like, uh, in order to show something is true, you have to be able to demonstrate it to other people with different points of view from other tribes. It can be market economies, uh, where you sell everywhere and anywhere to a lot of strangers. But the key here is that you've got a lot of norms and a lot of rules to follow that require you to negotiate and trust complete strangers to make these social decisions. Deeply counterintuitive, deeply radical. You'd think it would never work for a tribal species, but it, in fact, transforms humans as a species. It takes us orders of magnitude above our design capacity. And in a nutshell, you know, there's, there's all kinds of ways to think about liberalism. There's you know, philosophical and political. But, but I think the best way is as a social network to which we outsource our conflicts with fantastic success. Tell me about the similarities, in a way, between the American Constitution as it was understood, which is set up to have a whole variety, sometimes almost nearly infinite, of checks and critiques and uh, boundaries to what any individual actor can do. It kind of sets up a pluralism accepting and understanding that humans are going to disagree about some very important things in their country, but that if we create this system that allows these different ideas and these different actors and these different interests to check each other, then that, in a strange kind of way, will will you can, it can have an order to it. In other words, it can guarantee civil order without perpetuating civil strife. And also acquiring the full range of viewpoints and full range of interests that a country can produce through its elected institutions. In the same way, 
the the kind of epistemology of of the constitution of knowledge is exactly the same thing is that everyone is allowed but everyone is allowed also to criticize and the truth is held not as an absolute but always as the best we can do given our knowledge and given that we've exposed it to as thorough critique as we can and that's also the scientific method and these things are in some ways indifferent to the end Mm-hmm. Very attentive yes. to the means, because the means are designed in a neutral way to make the ends uh, more understandable and much and, and have real legitimacy and consent. Yes. And one of the ends of both systems, which we should never forget, is civility and social peace. We, we should never forget the problem that Madison and the others were trying to set out to solve, which is the near collapse of the early American republic into chaos. Um, and the need for some kind of civic order. So yeah, the, uh, the one of three big messages of this book, we can get to the other two, but, but the biggest and most important is it's not just the marketplace of ideas. Free speech is not enough. It's a constitution of knowledge. It's a system of norms and institutions that we rely on to keep societies moored in reality and to keep us at peace, civil, in resolving our disagreements. And it's not just a metaphor. It's not just an analogy to the U.S. Constitution. I argue that they're in many ways, as you just said, they're, they're very similar social systems. They map surprisingly well onto each other. They emerge at the same time from a lot of the same people. So specifically, the U.S. Constitution is, is a lot of things, but its heart and soul is it's a system to force social negotiation. It says the only way you can get a political outcome that's legitimate is to bargain with other people because no one can dominate the whole system. That's checks and balances. It's compromise. It's all of the many institutions that that have to do that. And Madison's genius was to understand compromise as an engine of dynamic change. You know, it brings in all these actors, all these forces, all these factions in society, and it channels conflict into cooperation. I mean, his his most important sentence is is ambition will counteract ambition. He understands the only force sufficient to restrain the urge of humans to dominate each other is to put that to work, to force them to deal with each other. And that's what the Constitution does through all these elaborate institutions, you know, Congress and courts and and divided powers and multiple levels of government. So what if you take the same thing and apply it to the world of knowledge? You make it impossible for any one priest or sect or prince or authority to impose its idea of knowledge and simply decree what will be in the textbook. And you say, the, the way you're going to have to make knowledge, folks, you're going to have to persuade others. You're going to have to say, here's my hypothesis. Now I'm going to show you why it's true. Now I'm going to put up with it when other people try to debunk it. And at the end of the day, what stands is knowledge. And I might win or lose the argument, but I accept the outcome. And there are some rules. And there are rules. And, and one of the rules is that no one has the last say ever. There is no final answer to any political or even moral question because, and this is also something that kind of emerged around in the 16th century, and you rightly, I think, look to Montaigne as as a key moment, and I think also Hobbes, obviously, in which they they grew tired of certainty because they had seen the damage that certainty could inflict and they became fascinated with doubt and with questioning things and questioning 
what we know, if we actually know it, how can we prove it? Can we look elsewhere? Montaigne is full of these historical and distant cultural examples to constantly challenge our habits of mind, our ways of thinking. But he was also a bit of a quietist in a way that he wasn't seeking uh, revolution. But like Hobbes, and like many of these early liberals, he also witnessed the horrible civil conflict in his own country, the horrible religious civil war. And in England too, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> My little hometown, I always tell this story a little time, but, but my brother's just moved actually into the middle of my hometown in England. And, uh, what town is it? East Grinstead. <laughs> what a great name. <laughs> it's a bit of a joke for a lot of people Sounds like Monty Python. Well, it, is a bit, it is a bit Monty Python because um, it's a sort of, it sums up English middle-class weirdness, uh, East Grinstead. Uh, and it's also kind of a very sleepy little market town. But it also, by the way, this is just random, it has this incredible array of religious sects. All it has more religious sects than any other uh, town in the United Kingdom. It's got Scientologists, and Rastafarians, and and uh, all sorts of people uh, gather there. Tom Cruise can be seen quite often, uh, and that's where that's where what's his face, um, Elrond Hubbard, had his mansion for a long time when he was when he was trying to escape the authority, legal authorities in the United States. Anyway, I, I drift aside, but he's got a new house, new, new, new apartment right on the old High Street, Victoria, Elizabethan High Street, still has Elizabethan buildings. And a little note that, that six people were burned at the stake, right there in front of, like a, a, a two minute walk from my brother's house. And this little bucolic little English town had people gathering around and burning other people in the high street in England. Uh, that's not that long ago. And it was that experience of seeing the insanity, especially in, in those cases, there was a short Protestant regime under Edward the Sixth, uh, And then there was Mary Tudor, who was another Catholic, came back in, tried to stop it all over. And then you got the settlement with Elizabeth I and the slow calming down of these tensions as she was this brilliant... Uh, moderator. Um, so anyway, that's just the. I, I think we sometimes ignore that human nature is human nature, and we can very easily become tribal and creedal creatures well, with that's, zero tolerance. That's that's the historic way of doing it, of course. And for most of history, the the price of being wrong on a socially important subject like religion is your life, or your career, or uh, your place in the community. You are ostracized. And we'll come to this, but in today's world, there are a lot of activists who want to do exactly the same thing, not physical murder, but you know, a kind of social death, ostracism, losing your job. That's the natural human impulse. And you know, Montaigne and Hobbes are very important figures, but they're kind of transitional in the sense that they look at this and they throw up their hands. Hobbes says, well, we're going to have to have a prince who will make all the decisions. And, uh, and, and that prince should obey people's rights, follow, follow rights. But you know, there's, there's no real mechanism to get rid of the prince if, if they don't do that. And Montaigne just throws up his hands and says, well, you know, we can't be certain of anything, so we should stay in our castle and write essays. And the great breakthrough starts with, with John Locke. There's a chapter in the book which, which explores what I argue is the, the founding of the Constitution of Knowledge. It's not a single date, but it's self-conscious. These were people who set about solving these social problems. And the way they did it were two rules. One you alluded to, it's, it's a rule of fallibism, fallible to no final say. And that says, knowledge doesn't come from certainty, it comes from doubt. We can all be wrong, 
at any given time. No one can close the books on a proposition, but that doesn't mean radical skepticism that we know, don't know anything. It does mean that if a proposition withstands a lot of checking, a lot of vetting, a lot of criticism over time, to the extent it does that, it becomes knowledge until it's debunked. And that turns out to be a great foundation for knowledge. That's modern science. And that's new, the idea that you could build knowledge on uncertainty. The second is empiricism. And that's no special authority. That says you've, you've got to be able to demonstrate the truth of your proposition or the falsehood of someone else's in a way that anyone else can do. It shouldn't matter who you are. People are supposed to be interchangeable. And that's the crux of liberalism. People the, are the interchangeable. Reasonable person the reasonable standard. person or the whoever it is, the, the, the perspective of no one in particular. And that's also a crazy counterintuitive idea. You know, we're wired to have our perspective or our tribe's perspective. And here instead, we're supposed to say, well, in order to prove this, to, to, to prove out this proposition, it has to convince not only Andrew Sullivan, but strangers all across the planet who read the article I publish it in. That's a very hard and challenging game to play. And both of these games require a ton of discipline. But those become the foundation of this fantastic global network that a month and that five weeks ago put a Pfizer vaccine in my arm. It's this fantastic global network for, for finding error. Uh, the, the, the secret of the liberal system, the liberal epistemic system, is not that it doesn't make mistakes. It's that it makes them fantastically quickly and sorts through them fantastically quickly. And you don't pay with your life or your career or your position in society for being wrong. You just lose the argument and we move on. Yes. And with any luck, in the spirit of the constitution of knowledge, what matters is not that you got it wrong, but that we've discovered something better or that we've found a gain in knowledge. It's not exactly a slight to the person whose theory has just been debunked. Of course, they may feel that. They will feel that. But the, the, the system says that's not we're relying upon fallibility. Yeah. And it also reminds me a little bit of the, you know, the English justice system where, where you don't find, you know, you, 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 there are so many barriers to believing quickly the view of any single person. There are witnesses on both sides. There are lawyers taking opposite positions in a way that, that you do in science. We say, this is, this is what happened. No, this is what happened. And it's in that uh, context, but also in that context that we place so much uh, emphasis on the presumed innocence of the suspect until found guilty. That's an act of epistemological humility. And it's also, and, the, and, and jurors of his peers, of just regular people, 12 regular people, who, again, the reasonable person standard, that also comes out. It's airing it all. It's not rushing to judgment. Yes, yes. It's one argument versus another. It is, and, it, and it's appeal in the courts to objective evidence, uh, which we all agree exists because we test it empirically, right? Yeah, so as, as you know, um, the book argues that, there are, that, that the constitution of knowledge is basically the charter for what I call the reality-based community. And there are four pillars of that. There's a lot of other... You know, there's museums, for example, and there's consultancies and libraries. But the big four are the research community, that's science and academia, the journalistic community, that's mainstream media, the people who are reality-based. We can talk about that. Um, the government. And very importantly, the law. Where is the place where Donald Trump's efforts to make up stories about the election fall flat on their, flat on their face? It's the courts because they're reality-based. Um, and you make a very important point. One of the other 
major uh, comparisons, similarities between the epistemic and political constitutions is, you know, we may not want to compromise. In politics, we can be extreme in our views. And in science, we can believe that we're right. But we do have to accept the legitimacy of a system in which our side can lose, but we move on to the next battle, the next argument. Super important in, in, in uh, politics, and we see that breaking down today. Super important in knowledge. We can lose the argument and still move on with our reputations, you know, unless we've broken the rules, our reputations intact. And that means the system can roll on and on if we grant it the legitimacy that it deserves. And, and that, of course, you know, that's the big if, right? Yeah. And if it loses legitimacy, it just becomes power. It just becomes all the way down. The ability uh, for there to be power exercised all the way down. In some ways, there is a, you know, a contrast between truth all the way up or power all the way down. The, the, and the truth, of course, is not something held a priori. And that's incredibly important to say. It is something you don't know. When a reporter goes into a story, if they're supposed to be doing this right, they're not supposed to go in there trying to prove a thesis. They're there. They may have a thesis in mind, but they will seek out views and facts that will challenge that thesis to present a nuanced position that is as good as they can get because you know, report is yeah. two or three yeah. days they're going to get a snapshot but they could they could at least give the reader a sense that they've gotten the scope of the whole picture if even they're if, a good record, reporter but even more importantly even if a reporter gets that wrong and we often do other reporters will not um, so you saw actually a, a good example that's going on right now is a year ago people were saying it's just impossible that the uh, coronavirus originated in a lab in China and reporters heard that, and they all reported it. And fact checkers said, "This is a crazy conspiracy theory." Not, not all of them. There were there were a handful of. Well, people I was about that, yeah. to say, not all of them. Some continued digging, including at the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. And within a year, they looked a little bit harder, and they they redirected the conversation. And that's a good reporter's job. Now, not everyone has to do that, but as long as there are people checking each other's each other's ideas in the reality-based community. That's what makes it work. That's the Madisonian element. It's you, you, the only way we see our biases, we never see our own biases, the only way society can, can find biases and correct them is to pit bias against bias. You've got to have a lot of diversity of viewpoint, and then you've got to have a, a lot of structured conversations across these viewpoints. That's when it works, because then even if individuals get it wrong and act out of bias, which we always do, the system will wind up being less biased or even unbiased. Same idea with constitutional democracy. Lots of factions, lots of interest groups. But at the end of the day, the process brings out, we hope, better policies than any one faction would bring. Okay, now let's take a contemporary example of anybody can say their opinion and contribute uh, the internet. Uh, or let's take Twitter, for example, which is a, a network of completely connected but all sorts of different people um, and different points of view. But it, and some of us hoped at some point that it would be a wonderful new opportunity to explore new truths, new ideas, have them validated or contested or, and there'd be, I remember the early blogosphere, we were very intent upon linking to each other always so that readers could see the other side fully. Um, yeah, you showed your work. Yeah, you showed your work. If you needed to explain it, then you would then you would also like as I did at the dish, would constantly have dissents from readers who would tell you you're full of shit and for these reasons. Or sometimes uh 
people's just perspectives based upon their own histories that, of how they come across a, a particular topic. They're sharing anecdotes, sharing histories. Uh, so that even though I have a point of view, I don't hold it as, I hold it always as temporary um, and subject to counter views. Now, you look at Twitter today and it's, 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 it's an, it's, it's a not that. No, it's nothing we can say. It's not that. I found it the least persuasive part of your work that, that we can somehow reform this. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I just think that when you leave humans alone, you see it happening as if in this sort of almost a kind of war game situation. You throw people into a, into a contested it's, space and see what their instincts. Yeah. Uh, except that their their avatars, not bodies. Not they're, they're, it's all a kind of meta version of that um and we you see what happens people form tribes instantly people silo themselves into with a variety of people they follow that just tells them what they want to think they then treat uh arguments or people making arguments with which they don't agree they find ways to dis discredit or delegitimize the author not the actual argument so that the number of times I've heard people say, well, you would say that you're white. And that's it. Not you're wrong because you got this wrong. And maybe your own experience is just, no, it's like you got that wrong because you're a white racist asshole. And that or, is, or just leave out all of that and say, you're a white racist asshole. That is the argument. Yes, that is the argument. And that's what people think is an argument. And certainly I would say for the under 30s or under 35s at this point, that is... That is the kind of argumentation they are used to. All they do when you present an argument is instantly figure a way out how your identity just removes you from any legitimacy in this conversation. Well, I've listened to lots of these podcasts. I, I love this show. I'm, I'm so honored to be on it. It's one of my little life goals. But one of the things I've learned is that Andrew will always find a way to be pessimistic. If he possibly <laughs> can find a way to be pessimistic, he will. So I'm just going to counter that for fun today. Okay. The book is hopeful. It's, I know it is. It's guardedly optimistic. I think it's absolutely, in that sense, unpersuasive. Um, it, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> but I'm going to try you anyway. We're doomed. I'm going to try you anyway. Okay. Try. Cheer me up about Tell me how we can and I'm going to say it's, it's not automatic that, that we, the forces of organized civil conversation, triumph over the forces of nihilism and epistemic chaos that are engulfing us. It's not a given, but we can, I think. And I'll, I'll start making that case by saying we've been here before. Uh, the invention of the printing press, as you know, set uh, off a, a chain of fake news that spread like wildfire across Europe about witchcraft, led to the, the killings of tens of thousands of people, mostly women, led to wars that swept across Europe. It took 100 years to get that to settle down, but eventually we did develop the institutions um, that channel those disagreements into productive conflict. We now call that science. We saw this in the United States in the way the media operated in the 19th century. Fantastically partisan, uh, fantastically, you know, it was full of fake news. And that was largely technologically driven. You had the invention of the penny press, which went after eyeballs. It was subscription-based, so the more crazy you sounded, the more people you got to sign up. And then the invention of offset printing, which allowed these huge empires like Hearst to form. And they loved outrage. That was yellow journalism. How do we deal with that? Well, we built some institutions and guardrails. And some people, again, I, I always emphasize, it's, it's conscious. Constitution building, institution building is conscious. So a lot of people said enough of this. This warfare is getting us nowhere. 
It's just all making us hostile. It's making us demented. So you get the foundation of the American Society of Newspaper Editors. First thing it does is promulgate ethics codes, the same codes that you and I were taught in our journalism career, you know, double sourcing, uh, checking back for comment, the whole editorial structure, making corrections. You got journalism schools. And within a couple of generations, you had Walter Cronkite. You know, you, you had a fantastically, by historical standards, good media structure. So here's the question. Twitter, for example, but also Facebook, but also really all of them, were built as advertising uh, vehicles to collect eyeballs. The more outraged, the better. They're, they're epistemically nihilistic. They're epistemically negative. They don't care about truth. They just want to grab people's attention however they can do it. So they were designed without any thought to truth or to structuring conversations in civil ways. I argue that that's not necessary. They can be improved, maybe not perfectly, but they can be improved a lot through redesign. The, the invention of the instant retweet button, the like button, this was a disaster. The people who invented it say it was a disaster. It can be changed. Twitter now, if you try to retweet a link, which you haven't read, will we'll put up a banner saying, you sure you want to retweet it? It's small, but it's the kind of experiment which over time can generate changes um, in the way these, these platforms function. We'll see if it works. But the bigger thing is, I think, for example, Facebook's oversight board. People are very cynical about that. They see it I, as an I advertising board. extremely cynical. Yeah, I'm not, because I see it as the beginning of the development of a kind of common law set of standards and values, which if they work and if they catch on, can start to clean up some of this mess. That's how we've done it in the past, create institutions. Um, the International Fact Checkers Network, which has really sprung up in the last five years and growing by leaps and bounds, is creating an infrastructure to find and, and check fake news, which then these platforms can plug into. There are problems with that. None of these things are perfect, but, but here's the thing. They don't have to be perfect. They just have to be better. The fact checkers industry, of course, in, in, is, insisted that the COVID lab leak was a preposterous idea that only lunatics, and so did Vox, for example, uh, uh, yeah, I and looked, so did plenty of plenty of, of fact checkers. Sure, journalists make mistakes. I just looked yesterday because because now conservatives are you know kind of on my case about this. Isn't this an example of of liberal fake news and, and conspiracy theory? So I went I went back and looked at the Politifact fact check that originally gave a pants on fire rating to the Wuhan lab virus, and I think the pants on fire rating was excessive. Um, but I think when you go back and look at the fact check. Based on the knowledge at the time and what expert opinions were saying, it was very reasonable. And more important, they show their work. They source everything. So you can look at it and read it, look at the sources and decide if you think it's true. I think what it reflected were the shortcomings of knowledge and the misgivings of the time. And frankly, Trump, you know, who is spinning bullshit, including this. So we assumed it was bullshit. But the same forces that allowed themselves to go down that rabbit hole came back out of that rabbit hole. And in the last month or so, they 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 um, acknowledged that they had yeah like, screwed and, up yeah and that's Except what we're oh even Vox did that today yeah oh did it well they went back and stealth edited their pieces to make them look better and and once they were called out on it they they ran a little uh, yeah correction. the the post um, I noticed the post did a a TikTok of how this all unfolded and a lot of places are basically you know they're not coming out and saying sorry Tom Cotton this is the is it Cotton or um, Holly who originally? I think I think maybe it was one of them. I thought it was Cotton. Actually. I confuse them because they seem like kind of the same person. 
think yeah, there, there, this was a senator who said early on that we can't dismiss this this hypothesis. Well, that seems to be, and they're also kind of a, saying, "Okay, you were you were right, Tom Cotton." Yeah, but a fact checker could have said at the time, "This doesn't look evidence based upon what we currently know," but in fact, they were so sure that if Trump had said it, it was false, and you saw this a lot. Um, in the mainstream media under the Trump years. It was not a good yeah, time for yeah. journalism. Well, you and I may disagree about where the blame for that lies. I think it lies on Trump. Uh, second big message of this book, we talked about the first, the cons there is a constitutional knowledge, it's very important. We rely on it to keep our society safe and sane and smart. The second is, I summarize it with three words, you're being manipulated. Um, I argue in this book that there's a lot of attacks on the constitution of knowledge. Cancel culture is one, we can talk about it. I mean, you know, You've been on the receiving end of plenty of that. But the biggest, the most important, the most dangerous is Donald Trump and his minions and his supporters in branches of conservative media. And that what they're doing is waging a war of disinformation, classic firehose of falsehood, conspiracy, bootstrapping, disinformation campaign, the goal of which is to make people question everything so that they don't know which end is up, they don't know what's true and not true. Well, when a journalist encounters this, encounters a politician who isn't just sort of systematically spinning in some way that's favorable. But for example, Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, PolitiFact looked at all the claims that were checkable of both candidates. About 20, 20 to 25% of what Hillary Clinton said was on the false side of the spectrum. Can you guess what it was for Donald Trump? Either mostly false or false of all the checkable claims. Up to 75, 80%. Bingo, 70%. Right. Most of what came out of the man's mouth was false. So when you're a reporter in that environment, you become disoriented. You learn to distrust everything that they say. And that's the point. That's what they're doing. They're right. making everyone distrust mainstream media. Spewing falsehoods so fast, media can't keep up with them, can't check them all, and just has to start assuming they're false. And then when media gets that wrong, of course, Trump comes back in or his minions come in as they're doing now and saying, see, you can't trust the fact checkers. They're politicized. That's their game. It is. And Trump himself has, I think, and one of the things I've always found most disturbing about him, absolutely no understanding absolutely no understanding of the constitution of knowledge at all. I mean, he is an extraordinarily postmodern individual whose reality is what he wants it to be at any moment. Um, and you're right. Every time he's accused of something, he immediately, this is Roy Cohn, who originated this tactic, uh, you accuse your opponent of exactly the same thing in a way that, no, you're the puppet. No, you're the puppet. Um, for example, uh, of course, and there's this wonderful quote you have from him that starts the book. Um, what was that quote? It's um, uh, a terrible statement unless he gets away with it, which, <laughs> yeah, which this is, is a propaganda lie he's talking about. It's a terrible statement unless he gets away with it. That sums up. There is no status for reality except its utility for your own the advancement of your own interests or power. Which is another way of saying there's no reality at all. There's, there's no anchor in truth anywhere in this. This is what's so important to understand. Um, the tactics you're he... talking about actually go back well before Roy Cohn. Uh, they, Hitler and Goebbels were masters of all these tactics. So was Lenin, Vladimir Putin today. But a place I'd be curious if you think I'm right about this because it's a controversial proposition. But I don't think that um, Trump was a kind of... Um, 
what's the word for a naive person who gets everything right? Um, an, an idiot savant. An idiot savant, right, who just happened to stumble on these tactics. I think he spent 30 years creating the image of something he's not by spinning reality all of the time, by bullshitting, by calling reporters, pretending to be something else, and that he said on multiple occasions that he uses these tactics. He brags about them in The Art of the Deal. What does he call it? Truthful hyperbole? Is that the phrase I, he I, uses? I, I, he has I, told I, us before itself, he was, an untruthful hyperbole. <laughs> before he was president, he told us, he, he embraced uh, the claim that he was the world's greatest internet troll. Yeah. I believe that he is a conscious and genius level information operative, that he is the greatest since the 1930s, since certain Germans who are probably too controversial to name, but you know who I mean, and that he's really that good because he succeeded in doing something no one even imagined possible, which was adapting Russian-style disinformation on a mass scale to U.S. politics and deploying it with fantastic effectiveness to such an extent that 75% of Republicans now believe that the election was stolen. And a majority of them, 50, 53%, according to an Ipsos poll yesterday, now believe that Donald Trump is the rightful president of the United States right now. I mean, Vladimir Putin would love to be able to do that. Yeah, uh, I agree. And I, but I, I'm not sure whether there isn't just a general sociopathy in the man. I mean, uh, he, he, the, his treatment of other people is, is similar. He's, he's a deeply pre-modern figure in a way. Um, but I agree with you. A lot of this is completely a mix of, you see, I, I'm also not, I, I don't think I quite agree with it. It's all, I mean, I think it's very, it's a mix. It's I instinctive to him to, to it behave is instinctive. this way. And, and that's, but he's finessed it. And you're right. And the, the key thing about, for example, and you talk about the, the, the rest of the world or other people checking such a thing. Well, what was interesting about the things he makes you say so, for example, the very first thing that he ever said was that my crowd is, was bigger than Obama's crowd, even though we all have eyes to see and the contrasts visually were clear. But not just that, but he has to send his own person out to tell the press that they must report this, that this is true because he said it's true. And it was a power move. It was a move designed. And when you saw someone like Spicer uh, going out to tell that thing, to say that thing, that he himself knew was absolutely bonkers. That's a way in which he, he essentially subdues you. It's a, it's, a, it's a total mastery of the other person. It's, it's a dominance move. It's also a disorientation move. So we should, if, if we can, let's, let's just back up just a little bit and talk about the theory of what's going on here, what, what I think t Trump is really up to, what Putin is up to, what now the Republican Party, alas, is institutionally up to. And that's information warfare, propaganda warfare. And the goal of that typically is to manipulate and organize the social and media environment to dominate, divide, and disorient. Sometimes you want to persuade people actively of things that are false, you know, that Donald Trump won the election. But you'll also be quite happy if you can split the target society, polarize it, make it less functional, set it at odds with itself. Or if you can confuse everybody in the target society so much, they don't know what's, what end is up. They don't know who to believe. They don't trust anyone. So maybe they'll trust the demagogue or dictator. And you demoralize them. You think, well, in this environment, I, I don't know what to believe. And I, I don't trust anyone anymore. And, and it, I'm, 
and, and people, you know, in the media, we saw this. People became demoralized. They couldn't keep up with it. These are all domination moves. They're all well-proven in the information uh, warfare scholarship. The reason we have a constitution of knowledge is that we know since the time of Plato that we are vulnerable cognitively to lots of hacking and lots of manipulation. So we set up all these rules which put us on our best behavior. I'm going to show my age here and shock some, some listeners and say, you know, if, if you write an article for the mainstream media or a scientific journal that begins, Jonathan Rausch, you ignorant slut, um, it won't work. It won't even get published. And it will fail because there are a lot of protocols in the constitution of knowledge, like protocols in the government. You know, a judge can't sit down, bang, bang a gavel and say, so what the fuck is going on today? Um, these are important. And they're there to protect us from our worst selves, to force us to be able to have a conversation, to compare views with others, and kind of come to some kind of consensus over time. Well, Trump and trolls subvert all that. They use outrage to hijack the conversation. We can't help but rise to the, to the bait when someone says, Andrew, you ignorant slut. Um, we rush to defend our tribe. We rush to defend ourselves. We're mainstream media. We rush to say that's false. Trump figures that out. Classic example. One day there's some bad, there's a bad story about Ivanka. And he realizes that's going to be in the news cycle. So he tweets out, I hope the Israelis ban the, the squad, these four liberal, progressive Congress people. Uh, they should ban them from entering Israel. And he says to his aides, that'll hold them for the rest of the day because he knows that's such an outrageous thing to suggest that the media will swivel and cover that. He's really smart. So he's hijacking the conversation. He's installing ourselves in our brains so that we can't get rid of them. He's disorienting us, confusing us, demoralizing the press and the public, all the better to create a cult of personality. No one can look at that right now, I think, and say he hasn't succeeded beyond anyone's expectation of what would be possible in America. Yeah, and I don't think the story is over at all. Oh, no. I think the no. likelihood of him being president after Biden is really quite high at this point, especially the way things are going with the Democrats. Uh, but I might also say this, that when such a figure emerges, a kind of force against the constitution of knowledge, you're right. It becomes very hard to keep in your you keep your mind straight and to only focus on what's true. And I don't think journalists did that uh, under him to, to to a great extent. Um, and and neither did the judi judiciary in many cases. That they they jumped to make rulings that were not part of uh, the uh, the constitution of knowledge. They, for example, they immediately denied a president any ability to control immigration. They just stuck all these, struck all these things down. When he, eventually he won through the Supreme Court, but the courts were not doing what they're supposed to do. They took the bait. Oh, they Similarly, had an impossible you dilemma. Trust. I mean, I, and I've, see, I've watched this now for several years. I do not trust because of their response to Trump and how they've changed over the last four years almost all the major media institutions in the country. They have lost my trust because I think at this point they are as interested in, in creating false narratives as, as Trump was. Oh, yeah, I completely disagree with that. I come out, I come out very differently um, for a couple of reasons. The first is to, to reemphasize what I said a minute ago. You have to adjust for the environment people are functioning. And judges operate in a world where people come to them in good faith and don't hand them a brief, which is just a pack of lies. 
when they are handed a brief that is a pack of lies, they have two choices. Traditional judging, which says, if the administration says this, I need to assume it's true and grant them full powers, or do something unusual, which they did, at least at first, until it got to the Supreme Court, which said, no, I have eyes in my head. I can read my morning newspaper. I can see that this is a pack of lies, and I'm not going to let you do it. And that's what they did. That's an impossible situation for the court, similar for the media. Even when, all even when doing, the president is within his rights to do something, they threw it out knowing that he was within his rights. So they did so, they did so politically, not judicially. Well, I, I disagree they did it politically. I think they, when they come when on. they say if you come in with a pack of lies, but he didn't come in with someone. He didn't come in with anything. The the sort of the decision that he can decide who comes into the country or not is pretty well, well established was, for the president of the United well, this States. Is, this is a, a rabbit hole about how you interpret that. Um, but I think that the things he was saying to justify his decision and his motives were clearly not consonant with what he and his administration were saying on Twitter and in the courtroom and in the campaign. And a lot of those decisions, I think, hung on the motivations of the government. But okay, whatever. The broader point I'm trying to make, take it or leave it, is that what information warfare, what this is trying to do is shift the information environment to put people in impossible dilemmas. Like, for example, suppose you're the mainstream media and you know that what the administration is saying is a pack of lies. Do you do the typical on the one hand, on the other hand thing? Or do you denounce it as a pack of lies? Well, either way, you lose because it's not supposed to be your job to tell people what to believe. On the other hand, you don't want to just parrot stuff that you think is false. And Trump knows that. The more outrageous, the better. I mean, the man's altering the weather map, right? The man's telling you it did not rain during his inauguration, when in fact, it did rain on his inauguration. So again, the whole point here is to put people in, in impossible positions. Conspiracy theories. This is classic. You put the theory out there. Should the press cover it or ignore it? Trump says Joe Scarborough is a murderer. Do you then say, well, Joe Scarborough is not a murderer? Which, of course, just further installs in people's minds the idea that he might be. Or do you ignore it, which also allows the lie to continue? So, so the point I'm making here, Andrew, is I think you're judging by the wrong standard. I think you're judging by the standard of an information environment that Trump has ravaged. And I think under the circumstances, the press and the courts did remarkably well, especially the reporting that went on under Trump, the amount of stuff that was revealed about him, the, un the fact that most journalists were not intimidated by him, and that we knew most of what was in the Mueller report long before the Mueller report came out because the New York Times and the Washington Post told us. I think if any institution rose to Trump and defended, defended democracy by figuring out what the truth was and telling us, it was, it was the media. But the Mueller report found much less than the media had promised us. That that the story actually was somewhat deflated by the end of it. The press had no, devoted two people. years to pursuing a conspiracy theory uh, about Russia collusion with the president of the a conspiracy with the president of the United States to overturn the election. Um, now they did that. The 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 mainstream media did that. Uh, they've also subsequently decided that their job, for example, the New York Times, its main goal is the uh, dismantling of white supremacy. That's their journalistic mission. And you could even see it in the internal meetings they had. Um, they went, they were going to do Trump and Russia for two years. Then when that didn't, then that didn't work out, they were like, oh, now we have to do race. And, and, and. Uh, entirely along the lines of critical race theory, not in any other zone. So they yeah, knew the story. That... They know the story in advance. They, they, they only 
report the facts that comport with that. They ignore anything that does not comport with that. And that is in almost every other story you see. And it's driven from the top. A newspaper that publishes the 1619 project and then wants to actually teach it to children is not interested in airing different points of view. It has adopted full scale the notion that there is no constitutional knowledge, that you have knowledge or even your epistemology based upon your identity, that there is no truth, that if you are white, there is a certain truth. If you are black, there is another truth. And their job is to make sure that the, the least powerful truth is advanced against there's no sense that yeah, in the see, New York Times so, that they're looking for empirical object, objective facts. They're just not anymore. So I won't get into a, a conversation about what's going on at the New York Times. Um, there's a lot going on there that, that I'm not happy with. And I'm an old friend and colleague of, of James Bennett. So I know whereof I speak. Um, but I guess my global re reaction to, to all of what you just said, taken as a group, is that you might be right if you take everything you just said and divide it by 10. It wildly overstates and overinflates real problems in media, but it also overlooks the fantastic contributions that media have made to understanding what was going on in the Trump years, um, catching on to it, blowing a whistle on it. I don't think you're right about the Mueller report. I think it was devastating. But unfortunately, um, the attorney general succeeded in, in painting it as a nothing burger. I mean, it wasn't. This is a we can have a conversation about them. Maybe we shouldn't do that right now. But I think I think it was a very big deal. I think that it was it's established beyond a doubt that although there wasn't formal collusion, there didn't have to be that the, the Trump campaign was. But we knew all that already. Yeah, and we knew all that because the media told us. No, we knew all that because Trump himself got in front of the TV cameras and said, listen, if you're listening, Russia, please release these emails. And they did the next day. We saw it up front. We didn't need them to, to throw all their resources at proving something we already knew, when in fact, where they were trying to prove that it was a, a very conscious cons a conspiracy to pervert which, and to change the results of the election, none of, of which of, was even slightly true. Of, of course, but this goes back to our earlier perhaps argument, um, perhaps contrast, to be euphemistic, which is I think you're blaming that far too much on media. Um, and the person who gets blamed for that is Trump. Remember, one of the great discoveries of Trump, one of the, the things that to me puts him in, a ge in the genius category, is he's the first guy to say, you know, if Vladimir Putin wants to do a disinformation campaign, he wires it all up in secret. You know, he uses trolls and bots in the Internet Research Agency in a building in St. Petersburg, and they disguise their identity and go underground and pretend to be people. Trump says, F all that. It's a family broadcast. Trump says, screw all that. He coordinates a disinformation campaign in full public view. And that's what he's doing. He's signaling to the Russians at that press conference, but also to conservative media and his followers, this is okay now. Here's the play. Just We're going went, for this. Just as he went Post-election. Right. Exactly. Just as he went on TV uh, during the Comey thing and said, yeah, I fired him because of Russia. And, uh, and, he, and, he, and but I, I remember writing a post that day saying he just admitted to obstruction of justice. But that was the point. He was telling you obstruction of justice is no longer a crime if I do it. So it turns out we should have seen this. But a particularly good way to coordinate a massive disinformation campaign is to do it in full public view. The best example of this, I think, is in April of last year, Trump begins 
a full-bore public attack on voting by mail. Well, that's odd. You know, pundits like me scratch their head. And, you know, a lot of, first of all, it's coronavirus. And a lot of voters are, are elderly and worried about coronavirus. And Trump skews older. So why would he want to subvert, um, subvert voting by mail? That's, that could redound against Republicans. Well, you have to realize he wasn't particularly interested in the election. He was interested in the post-election. What he was signaling was that the line is going to be the election is stolen. And by doing that in full public view, he tells conservative media, this is going to be the line, the Republican Party, this is going to be the line, the Trump grassroots, which then becomes stop the steal. And what he's doing is creating a message, establishing a network, and testing that network so that he can mobilize it the day after the election, which in April of 2020, he knows he's likely to lose. And that's exactly what he does. And we knew he would do it because he told us, but crucially, that doesn't make it any less effective. However, I'm, I'm, I'm now playing devil's advocate because I in no way want to defend that awful man. Uh, but this was a different re- election because of COVID. It vastly changed the way in which people vote. Uh, mail-ins became so, a much bigger factor than others. And, and there are legitimate questions about the solidity of mail-in ballots. You can harvest them in, in bad ways. They're not as... It's, most people would say they're not ideal. They'd rather have the person in, 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 cast in person so you can be more sure of it. Um, but I agree with you. I, I don't think it's completely, I don't think it's out of bounds for a candidate to say, we've just changed all the rules of the election for this. Can we make sure that this is right? Yeah, this is but, the- but I think you accept that, it sounds like you accept that's a very different kind of conversation, right? That's how do we do this in the most secure way? How do we make sure it's really necessary? The, the actual fact, as I understand it from the experts, is that vote by mail is more secure than in-person voting. But, but setting that aside, this is not the conversation Trump was having. Trump was having the conversation, they're going to steal the election, and here's the message about how they're doing it. Will conservative media pick it up? They do. They run with it. Hannity, all those people. Uh, and that's when you know you're going to have a massive disinformation campaign. I'd also point out something people forget is that a clever propagandist, Russians were supremely good at this. When they do a document drop, for example, of phony documents, they'll always to make, make sure that there's plenty of true stuff in there. The forgeries are salted in. They're used, they use truth and falsehood and make them very hard to distinguish so that someone like us can always say, well, there are legitimate questions somewhere in this brief, this court brief or in this article about the election. They can always say, well, see, there are legitimate questions. Well, couldn't you say that about the Steele dossier? In, on the other way around, there was probably some legitimate stuff in there, but a whole bunch of uh, uh, they were they were flooding the zone with shit. Uh, and it was, you know, Hillary had some role in bringing that about. And I was, you know, I didn't know what to believe. BuzzFeed printed it with no verification whatsoever. Uh, that's what I mean by the press stepping outside their normal zones. Um, after Trump, I'll give you another example. You know, that horrible shooting in Atlanta which the New York Times immediately said was a white supremacist anti-Asian hate campaign. Uh, and they ran, I, I counted all the stories, about 15 pieces. Uh, only one piece actually had the facts of this case. They have been deliberately promoting an idea that American liberal democracy is a sham, that it's simply a mask for racial power dynamics, that as one of the the reporters to the actual chairman said, 
Race needs to be integrated into every story. The fact of white supremacy has to be validated in every single story we do. Uh, and lo and behold, it is. That you can barely find a story in the New York Times about social or cultural issues which is not completely loaded in one direction. Not a, you can barely find a non-leftist person contributing any opinion to the New York Times. They're barred. They, so, they, they fired their own editor-in-chief, editor, uh, editorial uh, page editor, editorial editor, because he wanted a variety of views. Because so, someone expressing so an opinion they claimed hurt their lives. These are not journalists. They are, they are as knee-deep in this information propaganda warfare as the Trumpies. Oh, that's so wrong. So here's why I don't want to have that conversation and why I want to ask you to to, to step back a little bit, which is... Oh, but I think if the press won't stand up for these liberal well, hang on, let, if me, the press let me ask you... Actually, very openly, disavows them. Um, so, as I say, I'm not going to be drawn into a conversation about the New York Times specifically. I have a lot of problems with where it's going, and I'm kind of sad about that because I grew up on a different kind of New York Times. It's also, however, still a great news reporting organization and has many strengths. But never mind the New York Times. Here's my question for you. And I think it's an important question. Are you as concerned about the New York Times as you are about Donald Trump and the Republican Party in terms of their effect on the information environment? If the answer is yes, then we're, we're setting very different priorities right now because I think this is you know, an elephant versus mouse comparison. Well, I don't think it's elephant mouse. Um, Maybe elephant dog. Uh, I, uh, the, this particular ideology, critical theory, which is believes that liberal democracy, this whole thing, is a farce. You and this book and these arguments from John Locke onwards are merely about controlling and policing non-white people. Everything else is bullshit. As the New York Times put it in their 1619 project, the, the principles of the United States are a lie. Not right. something we fail to live up to, a lie. Is that as bad as... Is that as dangerous as Donald Trump and the Republican Party and his minions and Stop the Steal and all of that right now? Well, I must say that that, what I've just mentioned, has all the power right now, has both houses of Congress, uh, has all the mainstream media, has every cultural institution, has every, almost every newspaper, and controls the entire university system. Uh, a, a, an Ill, a profoundly illiberal view is now in control of all our cultural uh, institutions, and they are practicing things that, that completely violate all the principles you hold. Now, I can, I can make a judgment, and I did. I voted for Joe Biden. I voted for Hillary Clinton because I can see that Trump is an extraordinarily demagogic danger. But I think the response to him has also become a danger to our liberal democracy. Now, maybe strictly that, speaking, that's what he's out to do. Yes, and they are they are making his day, and and the further left these places go, the more look. I love. I, I mean, I've always had issues with the New York Times. I always fight for them. That's the point of the New York Times. You're supposed to hate them all the time while you read them all the time, and it's the first thing I read and I go through it all. But I can't read any of the domestic stories. I know their lies. I absolutely know their lies. I can see it from the, the language they use, the words they've changed. Uh, this is a very conscious ideological attack on liberalism, and it's being led by the institutions of liberalism, the mainstream media, and our universities.
And in the book, you're, you're very clear about what's going on in universities. They are not interested in what you and I call truth. Well, again, so, so I wouldn't be, this goes back to, I suppose, our temperamental difference. But if I saw the world as completely dominated by one side and as bleak and as hopeless, I'd say, I'd conclude we're already so far on the path to some kind of cultural totalitarianism and neo-Marxism. And that's a lot of what's going on with the structure of these new arguments. I'd say, you know, it's irretrievable. It's hopeless. The cultural, the cultural highlands are occupied. But I don't think that's the case because I think that the liberal side of this argument, this is the last two chapters of the book, which we haven't talked about. That's cancel culture, emotional safetyism, and particularly anti-pluralism, which I think is, you and I, I think, have a different, sounds like a different kind of analysis of what's going on. You're more focused on sort of the the liberalism and the critical race theory. I'm more focused on the epistemic side, which is the effort. That is the epistemic side, John. The effort, well, there's there's lots of things in addition to critical race theory in there, but- No, there isn't anymore. It's a cuckoo in the nest. It does not allow other views to be held. And you can, that's why they're canceling people because their view is liberalism is a farce. Therefore, when we enter journalism or enter academia, our job is to suppress, fire, cancel, purge any dissent from us. So, again, I'm going to try to cabin the debate about CRT and all that per se. That's another conversation. Well, it is an epistemological shift. Yeah, that's what I'm going to talk about. But but I want to try to talk about that part and leave David Frum, who had a very good conversation with you about this on CRT itself. I kind of agree with him that once once corporate HR departments are done with it, it's it's going to be a laughable shadow of its uh, toxic Marxist self. But you don't believe that, and you may be right. And it's, what you evidence right. do you have that's happening? What evidence do you have of its moderating? Um, it's not a question of whether it moderates. It's okay. Here's the point. It's a question of whether the rest of society, the liberal part, the pluralist part, organizes and fights back. And that's crucially important. So, so let me, if, if I may, let me just back up a step. And, and here's my sort of analysis we, I just want to say, just make of what's going on We here. can't do that within these institutions anymore. They will not allow us. They will fire us. Well, that's why we're seeing, we're seeing the development of new institutions. And we should talk about that because that's really important. Um, so we talked about disinformation propaganda, what it is, an effort to manipulate and organize the social and media environment for political advantage, to divide, dominate, and disorient the other side. One way to do that is what we just talked about, and that's trolling, firehose of falsehood, flood the zone with shit, um, carnivalesque, Putin-esque style Russian lies. And that's what Trump et al. have been doing. There's another way to do it. And that's you manipulate what people think the consensus of opinion is, because humans adapt what we believe and even what we perceive to the consensus around us. And if I think I'm the only one who believes X and no one else does in my peer group, I think maybe I must be wrong. So what you can do is game that by creating a cultural environment in which one side is chilled and afraid to speak out. You can do this on a university campus so that people think, well, I must be the only one who thinks that affirmative action um, in the admissions process isn't working. People are afraid to say that. If that, you said that, you'd be fired. Or if you said there are lots of things that would get you in trouble, like, you know, uh, you could talk about police violence against black people. Only that would get opinion. you fired. You could talk about no. sex. There, there are lots of these things. These are in, these are in universities, see, the, John. Aren't you concerned? Well, you obviously I'm, concerned. Yeah, I've got a whole chapter about that. And, but the, see, I'm, what I'm trying to get people to do is think about this not as just some ideological play. But again, this is a form 
of sophisticated, targeted, weaponized information warfare by people who know what they're doing, which is if you can use social coercion to suppress one side of an argument, you can create what sociologists call a spiral of silence. Everyone believes that no one else believes what I believe, so we all become silent, and that's the pathway toward one side, often a minority side, which is the case among most student bodies at most universities. Often the minority side can dominate the majority and control the debate. And that's, I think, the structure of what's going on right now. And that's the larger structure behind a lot of the stuff that you're worried about. And I'm deeply worried about it, and that's why I wrote two chapters about it. I think what cancel culture is, it's not a new technique. It goes back to Tocqueville, who described a, it in the U.S. That was absolutely wonderful. I, I, might even, I, I, I this, It was a real eye-opener for me to read Tocqueville. Yeah, Tocqueville this, um, comes to the U.S. Here we go. <laughs> this is something I found also when I first came here. I'll read it because it it's a great passage. In America, the majority draws a formidable circle around thought. Within these limits, the writer is free, but woe to him if he dares to go beyond them. It isn't that he has to fear an outer de fe, but he's exposed to all types of distasteful things and to everyday persecutions. A political career is close to him. He's offended the only power that has the ability to open it for him. Everything is denied him, even glory. Before publishing his opinions, he believed he had some partisans. It seems to him he has them no longer. Uh, blah, blah, blah. He gives in finally under the daily effort he yields and returns to silence as though he felt remorse for having told the truth. Now, that is such an American experience, isn't it? I mean, it's well, happened it's, so many times. It's global. It can be done anywhere. John Stuart Mill said much the same thing in 1859. He says, amazingly, the biggest threat uh, to freedom in England in his time is not from the government and censorship. It's from an oppressive culture of conformity, social coercion. These tactics are very effective. And but, but they're but also the one very thing, American, it seems to me, because... And my theory, my theory is that by taking out established religion, everyone wants their own established, essentially. Um, and and what happens is there is no single truth, and therefore everybody's going to spontaneously create an established religion, which is a kind of spontaneously created social consensus. And they persecute people in America the way they don't. Any, I mean, the, you look at the Red Scare, you look at the Lavender Scare, you look at the Scarlet Letter, you look at. Um, all the panics in America that have rounded people up. I mean, think of the, the school kids, uh, the, the, the pedophile scandals of the 80s that were found out to be completely... I mean, this is what we do in America. Well, My so, feeling is that Harvard's returned to its roots as a religious school teaching doctrines. Yeah, I mean, it's a country that's, that's founded by, by Puritans, after yeah, all, right? Absolutely. So, But this is also human nature. The one thing Tocqueville gets wrong in the passage you read is he says it's possible for a majority to draw this circle around opinion. What he didn't realize mm. is that it's also possible for a minority to mm. do that by creating an organized environment in which you can tweet something out if you're an ordinary, if, you know, Andrew Sullivan maybe can tweet out what he wants. But if you're an ordinary employee for San Diego Gas and Electric um, and someone takes a picture of you holding your hand out your car window and what someone else interprets to be a white power gesture, you're fired the next day. Or you can be ostracized. That can happen on social media. It can happen on campus. There are lots of interviews in my book of, again and again, I would hear professors uh, and students talk about all the things that they couldn't say. Now, a lot of people on campus are, in fact, in agreement with them about those things. But you've got an organized majority, which has learned to weaponize things minority, like- Minority, you mean. Uh, yes, thank you. Organized minority, which has learned to weaponize things like investigations, 
for example, and class evaluations and social media gang ups, the people that students are now most afraid of um, in the university environment is other students. It's not these supposed left-wing Marxist faculty members. Um, it's other students. Uh, Two-thirds of American students now say they're afraid to talk about important political subjects because of fear of being ostracized. I would say and three-quarters so of American journalists feel that way too. Well, actually, 60% of Americans do as well. All Americans, that's one, one study found that that's approximately four times the level of chilling that we saw during the McCarthy era. And then the one that really makes me sad, Andrew, is a, uh, a survey last year by the folks at the Cato Institute, Emily Eakins and her people, found that 30% of Americans, almost a third, I think it's 32%, said that, that they thought that their, their job or their career opportunities would be in danger if they had a candid conversation about politics and that's across the board. That's not just Republicans and conservatives. It's also liberals. In the environment we're talking about, remember- Not leftists. Le um, leftists were, it was a minority that said that, but 46% of leftists were also afraid. What you're doing in this environment, when, when you're chilling this way as information warfare, you know, think about totalitarian dictatorships. You want to make everyone afraid to speak all the time. You don't want to create safe harbors where people know it's ever safe to talk. You want a situation where you can step on a landmine at any minute, including if you're a progressive, because that's the way the minority can really dominate. So, you know, David Shore, who's a progressive, I think maybe social socialist-leaning analyst, tweets out a perfectly ordinary tweet summarizing research. His research, which turns out to be completely valid. Completely valid. And, and <laughs> rather written, good and pretty, pretty self-evident, actually. And written by an African-American, it turns out. I don't care who, with the race of the person that, the, who, who wrote it. It doesn't matter. And none of this matters. The fact that it was an accurate tweet summarizing important research. Is all that matters. Even that doesn't matter. The real point there is we don't care who you are or what you say. We can target you and take you down at any time. The people who went after Steven Pinker, for example, who's a well-known psychologist at Harvard, so about a three or 400 mostly grad students signed a letter trying to get him off a prestigious board because he was supposedly a racist. So they combed his entire literature and his mm -hmm. entire tweet stream and everything he'd ever put out and came up with six trivial blatantly silly, out-of-context examples as their excuse. They didn't bring Steve Pinker down because he's too big, but what they're really doing is sending a message to everybody else. You should be scared all the time because no matter how hard you've tried to be on the level, we will find something on you if we want to. This is classic propaganda warfare. Again, it's spirals of silence. It's imposed conformity. But we can fight back, and this may be where you and I differ. Once we understand this is going on, once we begin to counter-mobilize, once people get wise to the fact this is happening, once we can begin to go to employers and say, stop firing the people overnight, once we begin to organize lobbies in universities, um, the Academic Freedom Alliance, which will come to the rescue, come to the assistance of professors who are targeted, once we begin to see student groups like Bridge USA and other student groups, the free speech groups that are starting to form, what does work against these organized majority is equally organized pushback. Remember, these guys that you're so worried about at the New York Times in 1619 or whatever it is you're worried about, although they've been gestating in academia for 30 years, as you know, 
they only broke into the public in about the last five years, and they did so with astonishing speed and force. There wasn't time to counter-organize, but now that's starting to happen. Uh, you're seeing groups pop up, grassroots groups, not staff-driven, which are organizing. You've got the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which is pushing back in the schools. You've got the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Free Speech Union is coming here. There's um, uh, Counterpoint, um, which, is, uh, which is actually defending employees and showing them how to defend themselves. If we can do that, that will work. But it will take time, and it will take determination, and it will take a certain amount of courage. Because the first people who do it will put their reputations on the line. Well, they'll be told immediately that they're racists. White supremacists, that's the new term for racism. They have to keep hyping the rhetoric to keep the threat that great. My concern is this, that the people we're talking about do not even share, they do not share, in fact, they emphatically reject the epistemology that we're using in which there is some objective truth out there and we have to try and argue about it and, and they they believe that that was constructed cynically to oppress non-white people and that that's always been the case. Uh, the New York Times argued that the, United, the American independence was, was motivated by a desire to keep slavery, uh, uh, something that's, I mean, it might, it's certainly a trivial aspect of it. Certainly some people did, but they were, but, but note how they rigged that to make that make the case they are on a mission to say the constitution of the united states is a lie that there the is no such knowledge thing, is a lie too. and the constitution of knowledge is a lie because and it's all the power game all the way down yes and but, but, but because standpoint epistemology which is that the truth is dependent on whether you are white black asian whatever trans whatever uh is prior to any notion of a reasonable person so once you have taken essentially the entire rug from underneath the liberal project, you're dealing with a much more formidable enemy philosophically when you arm it with the strongest rhetorical weapon that they can use, which is well, accusing and others. And then being, you throw in social media. Yeah, and then you throw in that. Uh, and you get whole departments of entire universities. You can throw that in too. Yes, and in which there are also ritual guillotines of people higher up these institutions who, who have obviously have the, the liberal epistemology who are destroyed and removed and as a further way of intimidating everybody beneath. And those who are part of these groups, I think of someone like Bari at the New York Times, the sheer amount of personal abuse, of, of abuse in Slack channels, uh, always accusing someone, always of being a racist, uh, uh, you also have in the universities, uh, they, only, they select candidates for admission on the basis of these identities, not necessarily on the basis of their ability to do the work consciously. Uh, so my point would simply be this. I, I agree with you, and I think, I don't know what, who's going to be on the ballot next time around. All I know is that what I've seen on the left and among Democrats and among liberals who have done nothing but surrender to this. Well, that's changing. Is it? That is now changing. Tell me, yeah. a, tell me a major head of a major liberal institution that is fighting this publicly. It's the new institutions. Well, no, the old institutions that have the power. I want to, I want to know. You, you, there's only so. I mean, there's only so much. If, 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 if the entire 
democrat media regime no, is no, i don't i don't think that's yeah. right at all so again i'm not predicting that one side you know that the good guys win and it's all easy i'm not saying that at all i am saying that if one side the most radical side and the most i call it purism as opposed to, to pluralism these are the people who you know burn the seven witches in your hometown um, and regardless of their motives and the idea behind They're them, burning J.K. Rowling as yeah. we speak. And regardless of what whatever the theory du jour is that they're pursuing, you know, whether it's critical race theory or before that it was Marxism or before that it was, you know, religious. It's always something, right? It that's that's less important, although it's important than the methods they're using, which are methods that silence all of society and dominate the discourse and drive out other points of view. And they're anti-pluralistic and illiberal, and we've known that for thousands of years. So the question is, can you push back against that in the position we are now? And they will capture institutions. They have captured institutions and universities. They've captured whole departments, they've not usually the entire whole universities. No, I don't think that's true, but we'll see. Oh, they, they promised critical theory, critical race theory will be implemented across every policy well, in under the Biden administration. Well, 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 we'll see. But, but, but going, back to what I, going back to what I said earlier, if you're right, and if it's too late to counter-organize, then it's all over. But I don't think it is all over, because I think a lot of the times, you know, you're a university president or you're an employer. If all the pressure, if all the incentives are on the side of throw the employee under the bus, you know, quickly fire the person or make the controversy go away by, by yielding to whatever the radical activists on campus say, um, all the incentives are one side. Those incentives can be shifted pretty quickly by counter-organizers who have the confidence in the arguments to fight back. And liberals, I think you're right to say, have been largely AWOL until now. But I think a lot of that is the, the Pearl Harbor factor, right? The Japanese looked 10 feet tall at first. They weren't, but it's going to take time to organize. So, so the point of this book, the reason I wrote it, as you gather, is to say, look, the constitution of knowledge, the reality-based community these things do not defend themselves automatically. That's the problem with this sort of marketplace of ideas view that we grew up with. If you have freedom, truth will surface by itself. We don't need to worry. It turns out that that's wrong. It turns out that there's all this structure, these institutions and norms and liberal values that we must defend in order to cling to reality. We forget that because science worked so well and so uncontroversially for the most part for so long. And, you know, in the days of CBS, NBC and ABC, journalism seemed to work quite well. But look well. at science, for example. But, let, but, me, let, me, let, me, let me point out some more. Have you looked at Scientific American lately? Have you looked at Nature lately? And these are explicitly critical theory papers now. Uh, they explicitly say that we have to examine uh, power, racial power dynamics in every field, that, that, that objectivity itself is a white supremacist notion. So, so look, if that's done in the context of— There are, there, there are 13, 15 I have, different sexes. I have, I have no trouble with people entertaining those hypotheses as long as it's in an environment that's open and subject to debate. That's where the real problem is, right? Um, I've, I've learned from critical race theory, but it has to be subject, like everything else, to the same kind of critical scrutiny. And that's the part, that's the reason why where the, where the fight begins, be. right, where the fight begins is in going back, pushing back against the forces that are manipulating the social environment to make those discourses impossible, right? And that's where I believe that we can win this thing. Here's my concern. I'm going to keep I mean, I'm you're, on you're your just, side. You're just going to be fatalistic about I, this. No, I'm not fatalistic. I, look, what am I doing? I, I, could, I could crawl into a hole and die. I 
write about this often. I I, I stand up at freedom of speech everywhere, every time. I'm fucking defending Nicole Hannah-Jones, for goodness sake. So I, I'm doing it. I just, I just don't do it with any great deal of optimism because, and this is why, uh, because when I talk to people under 30, they, they literally do not understand the idea of the constitution of knowledge. They've never been taught it. Well, no. It's they, they, all they, they they have no idea what uh, they will dis if they if, if for example I had a conversation a year ago during the 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 summer of 2020 which was very obviously unique in its passions but I just talked to this kid about um, policing and I, we just went back and forth some stats how how many are arrested I mean, we just it, but it became clear as I went on that that did not matter what mattered is that I was white. All that mattered. From then on, nothing could be considered. And at one point, he said to me, well, even though these statistics, you cite these statistics, they've never looked at statistics. They would have, they would have no idea. I would bet you that 98% of the people marching in BLM had no idea how many unarmed black men were shot dead in America. Uh, because the media won't tell you well, and then there's, yeah, there's uh, and they the will never provide any context to these, 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 these questions at all. But my point is that you looked at them as if you were going to have an argument, a debate, which you could do, but they, they have no understanding of this. It has been so drained out of colleges that they are so set up, not for the pursuit of knowledge at all, but for the imposition of this notion that there is, a, 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 that there is racial... Uh, priorities for some, and 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 it, it's a racial hierarchy. Uh, and if you're on the wrong side of that hierarchy, you're evil. If you're not, you're good, and that's yeah, all like, that matters. It's like Marxism, you know. It's you got the proletariat, and you yeah. got the bourgeoisie, and it's a fight. It's an eternal revolution with the vanguard. Yeah, a vanguard of activists. So you know, this, it's, is, right. this is the most successful takeover of an entire generation I have seen myself. And and that's what's happened to the newspapers. That they, so do you think it's all over? I definitely think it could be for a very long while. I definitely, I, 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 I'm trying to be optimistic. So about why do this. you do this podcast? Is uh, it just a voice in the wilderness? Yes, someone, I think someone <laughs> said that was what I was. I don't mind that. You know, there, the, the, for my for personally, I would like the world not to be like this. But my goal is just to try and understand it and explain it and make my point of view clear about it. And so and, I'm, I'm trying to fight this for in my book by saying- those reasons, I'm a white supremacist. I'm trying to fight this in my book by saying, actually, there is a, there is a huge amount of, of depth um, left and of argument left in the liberal community once it gets mobilized, once it gets its confidence back. Remember, it's had all the wind sucked I out get, of it. I get that. Um, by this, these doctrines that come out of nowhere, and, and liberals don't want to be accused of racism. So it's going to take time for them to understand that these arguments are not coming necessarily from a good faith place, a critical environment, that they're propaganda arguments designed to silence and intimidate. But they're starting to tumble to that. But even if I'm wrong... Meanwhile, they're giving that stuff Pulitzers. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, um, I don't even, trust them in it. I think I, they're all a bunch but, of cowards. Okay. But, but, but even if you're right that they're all a bunch of cowards and they'll never push back, and even if you're right that these groups that are forming or, for example, um, existing groups, Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education is about to do some very exciting work, uh, even if I'm wrong that, this, that, that the, the counter movement is beginning to form and that books like mine, I hope, and that work like yours will, will sound the alarm, 
and show the way out, show that our arguments are strong, that pluralism is really the only path to a peaceful, productive, and knowledgeable society, that what the purists have to argue is only eternal warfare in which arguments are not resolved and the casualties are either physical human bodies or ostracism or ignorance or chilling. Even if we don't win that argument right now, I keep pointing out to people, remember, the notion of free speech and free thought and all the rigors of science, these things are profoundly counterintuitive. The idea, the idea that speech was as blasphemous, heretical, wrongheaded, offensive, add your adjectives, that speech like that and ideas like that should not only be allowed but affirmatively protected is the strangest and weirdest and probably craziest social idea that was ever invented. And it's only saved, it's only rescued by the fact that it's also the most successful social idea that was ever invented by a country mile, I would argue. It put an end to the creed wars. It gave us knowledge. It gave us finally civil peace. And, but the result of that counterintuitiveness is that you and I and our children, metaphorically, and our grandchildren and their grandchildren will have to get up every morning and defend these ideas from scratch against a new generation that forever, what, what, for whatever new reason it is, emotional safetyism or critical race theory or something else, that they don't get it. And we just have to be cheerful about that because historically speaking, we've done incredibly well. Historically speaking, we've done incredibly well for about a two and a half centuries. Isn't that per- In the history of the human species, uh, that is an eye at blink of an eye. Every The rest of it, there are other 200,000 years outside of this tiny part of Western Europe and, uh, and, its, and its creation, the United States, uh, it has been the opposite because that is where human nature as you rightly point, this is why I totally agree with you, but I think your arguments show that we're fucked because, <laughs> because exactly that. That's a technical that, term in exactly, philosophy. Exactly that we have not done. Exactly that we are not expressing. I think we have and, not yet and, begun and, to fight. Well, I'm with you. I will, I, will, I will fight with you, John, as we have on many issues. I will not surrender on this, I know. But there comes a point once they capture an entire generation. Now, of course, they're capturing the, even you can get the Ibam Kendi baby, anti-racism baby book. They start young uh, and they are ruthless. They've been doing this very effectively. They, they destroyed so many people uh, as, as you, to, to you, put decourage. You, you, you empower them when you give them this sense of, of, of dominance of, of inevitability you know, Marxism used to look like that. And I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong, Andrew. It took these, a long struggle against these, Marxism. The, the point of my book is not the good guys win, let's all go away and no, do something I know. else. I know. But the point here is that it is also not futile to think that there are tremendous depths and important and very defensible ideas that we're suggesting. And a lot of allies, I've talked to tons of college students, including progressives on these campuses, who say they don't like the chilled environment that they're in. They believe, I've had gay students at one university, public university, a gay freshman, white male, came up to me and said, you know, he was basically kicked out of the LGBT group because he was the wrong race. And yeah. because he, although he's progressive, he's not progressive enough. Well, how often can you do that before those people out there who may be progressives but are also fundamentally liberal in the sense that they want to have a pluralistic conversation. They don't want to be intimidated, well, children oppressed. let's take a current example. Very those current. people, just to finish yeah. the point, those people are there. 
And there are a lot of them, mm -hmm. and they haven't yet begun to fight. And our target is not to convince the hardest core people on the neo-Marxist structural left, whoever they may be at any given point. Our target is those other people who need the arguments and the organization and the promise of what we can do in a well-structured epistemic society, the knowledge, the peace, the freedom. When they're equipped with those things, I think they start to see it differently, and I think we can start to mobilize. That's the hope, and it's the only hope but it's worked in the past. I think it can work again. <laughs> you don't buy it. <laughs> Andrew's going, know, if you can see him right now, he's been I saying, do, I, do think, I want that to be I true, really but it's true. not I'm true. Trying to be, I'm trying to look reality in the eye. Like, look, let's finish with this current little example. Like the, You probably agree with me on this, but in, in Boston, in, in New York, and in Washington, D.C., we're about to have these gay, kind of gay pride events because it's all kind of oh, weird. the police. And they're banning, in all three, the gay cops and their organization. Is it all three now? Yes. Uh, as well as elsewhere, Toronto and so on and so forth. Uh, now, there you have an obvious, and also the actual membership of Heritage of Pride voted to include the cops uh, by a big majority. Hmm. What did we say about tyranny of the minority? Well, the earlier. executive committee, the vanguard of the proletariat, using powers they said reverted to them when they're not in between meetings, within hours they reversed it. Do we see any? Even the New York Times came out against this. But will, the, will anybody boycott? Will any politician stand up and say anything? Will any gay figure actually really oppose this? They're all totally on board. Something absolutely illiberal, uh, deeply hostile to a group of people who, who always get the biggest cheer. So that's why I'm pessimistic. Yeah, but they're, they're not our target. You're not going to convince those people. And I'm talking to, so I would we, remind you. How do we you, retake the New York Times? I, I, well, I would remind you. How do we regain power when, when they control also the hiring policies too? I would, I would introduce you to Andrew Sullivan. <laughs> Andrew Sullivan, who I've known now for 30 years, began his career in an environment that was at least as ideologically hostile as this. It's true. And his most, probably most famous, most foundational article made the completely absurd and hopeless case for same-sex marriage to the laughter of the world, especially the gay movement, which was led by the radical left. Well, look where we are now. And that's not to say it's inevitable, but, but I would think you of all people would understand that the power of good ideas and the power of good arguments over time, not immediately, can work. Especially, remember, the goal here is not to convince the most extreme, radicalized, and frankly, totalistic, power-oriented and power-hungry people on the other side. They're not going to change. It's to counter them with better arguments and mobilizing other constituencies that are now sitting on the sidelines. Same-sex marriage, you know, it took a while, mm -hmm. but a lot of ordinary Americans came around to the idea, you know, maybe this would help build community, build families. Maybe this would be good for my son or I daughter don't... or their friend. Those are the people we need to reach. Well, you, you, that, that's a pretty killer argument. <laughs> <laughs> you still don't, you still don't no, buy no, it. No, no, I'm just, I don't, I, I, it's been, it was an amazing experience doing that. And we, but we did very different tactics. You know, I published an anthology on it, which included the best arguments against it, because that's liberalism. I had confidence and that within the liberal construct, we can win. My worry is that critical institutions in that liberal compact have turned. Well, we'll see. Here's, and, here's, and we need to turn them back. And I'm with you. I'm here's with what you. I can tell you. If the pluralistic side 
does not mobilize, then it is over. If the pluralistic side does mobilize, then it's a horse race. And I think, historically speaking, it's one we win because what we offer is a lot better. Among other things, it's the vaccine in my arm. Critical race theory is not going to make a coronavirus vaccine. It's really probably not going to solve much of anything, right? So if you want solutions and if you want peace and if you want civility and if you want knowledge, that's what we offer. The Constitution of Knowledge, a defense of truth by the great and powerful <laughs> Jonathan Rausch. Also, and hopeful. As you can tell from this podcast, one of the most reasonable, civil, and he does so so consistently. I've never really seen you lose your shit. And we all have different personalities to bring to all of these things. But uh, I revere your liberal disposition. And it's it's your... the words of my my then three year old niece. Everybody calm down. <laughs> calm down, guys. And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much, Jonathan. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Aww.